Uh, my name's Lucas. Hi. Uh, good morning. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Bayview Glen. I've had a little bit of an interesting week because on, on Wednesday, I don't know if you can tell that my face is swollen over here. Can you see it? I had oral surgery on Wednesday. So that was really fun. Um, I, I, like, I like the underground communication network at this church. Like, uh, it's also called a rumor mill, but I like it. So um, I, I hope that someone spreads a rumor that I had chewing tobacco in on, on, this, on this sermon in the morning. That would be really fun. So someone get that one started. Um, so I, I had gone into the, to the dentist uh, a couple weeks ago, and, and he was suspicious that I might have an infected root canal. And he referred me to a specialist, and lo and behold, they got a picture of my tooth, and I indeed had an infected root canal, which they had to fix. And it sounds just as fun as it was. And so the specialist gave me three options. He said, uh, we can do one of three things. We can extract the tooth. Uh, we can redo the root. He did not re- recommend extracting the tooth, so I was grateful for that. He said, we can redo the root canal. I was like, oh, well, it wasn't fun the first time around. So he said, the other thing is, we're not sure if we'll get all the tooth out if we just redo the root canal. I said, all right, what's option three? He said, option three is a quick little procedure. You come in on a Wednesday morning. You'll be here for about 40 minutes. We'll freeze the area. Uh, we'll reveal the root of the tooth. We'll um, clean out that infection a little bit. We'll give you a stitch or two. You'll go home, take it easy for the rest of the day. And then the next day, you'll be ship shape, back to your normal routine. So I will tell you a couple things. Number one is he absolutely undersold it. Uh, that is, that is not, not nearly as aggressive of language as the procedure really was. And, and I learned a couple things this week. Can I put this TV up here? Is that okay? Because it's helpful for me. Um, I learned a couple of things this week uh, when it comes to uh, dental work and oral surgery. The first thing is this. When they say freeze, they mean shots. Now... Uh, you can make fun of me. Oh, I got it, Chris. You're all right, buddy. Thank you. Um, you know, you can make fun of me all you want about this, that I didn't know that freeze meant shots. Uh, but just so you know, my wife has already given me a lot of grief about it, as have a bunch of friends. So I was under the impression, you know, like in soccer, you watch soccer on TV and somebody goes down like, ah, oh, my ankle, you know, and they're rolling around on the ground. And that little trainer runs out and they spray stuff on there. You know what I'm talking about? They spray stuff on there, and they're up, and they're ship-shape, and they're good to go. That's kind of what I thought was going to happen. That's not what they meant by freezing. What they meant is that doctor was going to pull out a really big needle and shoot it into my face four or five times. Second, the specialist doing the surgery and the dental hygienist literally got into an argument while they were doing my procedure. Like, he's, 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 listen, I'm, and I'm, it's all right, don't make me laugh this morning. It hurts to laugh. I don't want to bust my sutures in the middle of the sermon. I do, I have five, five or six stitches in my, in my gum. So, they get in a fight while, while they're doing the procedure, and he's like shaming her for not doing her job. He's like, there's blood all over my shirt. Look at this. Look at this. This has nothing to do with you, right? Nothing to do with you. Nothing at all to do with you. Like, get the suction in there. And I've got gauze in my mouth, all up in my face and stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, self, this is my blood. Like, why is he concerned about his shirt? I'm concerned about my face. You got me opened up. The second thing is, I got gauze in there. I can't play like mediator pastor boy at this point, right? Because I can't speak. I can't say to him, well, it sounds like, you, you, you're, it sounds like you're feeling angry. Is that true? Did you say you're feeling angry? I can't do that because I got gauze in my face. I also learned this. This is key learning number two. An angry dentist is not ideal, okay? 
And they're fighting above you and they're drilling, drilling in my tooth. This is not like, you know, and he's yelling at this girl and everything else. So that was, that, was, that, was, uh, that was not a ton of fun. And here's the third thing I learned on Wednesday when I had oral surgery. And this is actually applicable this morning. The rest of it's not really relevant. But this is actually relevant to our study in the book of Esther. Here we go. Uh, imperfect people plus finite perspective plus limited influence equals maximum trouble. <laughs> That's absolutely what I learned this week. I, look, I'm an imperfect flosser, okay? I get that. I'm an imperfect person. I Look, I floss every three weeks whether I need it or not, okay? I just tell you that. But when I do, I don't always do a good job at it. I got a finite perspective because I cannot, I can only see the top of my tooth. I can't see all the decay and funk that's going on underneath it. I've got limited influence. This means I cannot do a root canal on my own, can I? There's not like a YouTube video. It's like, oh, it's an easy, it's a DIY, no big deal. I'll just open up my gum, do the root canal on my own. I got limited influence, limited ability to manage out outcome and that equal that equals maximum trouble for me and it did so this week and that maximum trouble reared its ugly head in the form of anxiety and worry and frustration and I whined to my wife all sorts of stuff because when you add those three ingredients together it equals maximum trouble think about the way that this applies in every aspect of your life what happens when you take two imperfect people and they both say I do And both of them have a finite perspective. They have a limited perspective. They can't see it from the other person's shoes. Think about all the fights you get in with your spouse. Where they, I just wish you could see it from my shoes, right? From my perspective. And you're thinking to yourself two things. One, I can't see it from your perspective. I'm not you. Two, I don't want to be wrong. And your perspective is wrong. So, you know, I'm not even going to try. That's what I think anyway. That's what Amy thinks. And then I've got limited influence. I've got limited ability to influence. You know, I could, I could get into sin if I want to and do fear, guilt, and manipulation, try to change Amy. But really, I, you know, you can't change your spouse all that much. You add all that stuff together, it equals maximum trouble, doesn't it? Or in a workplace environment, you've got imperfect people with finite perspective and limited influence trying to work together to solve a problem or get a client or publish something or whatever, and it can equal maximum trouble. That maximum trouble can take all kinds of shapes. It can take the shape of stress. It can take the shape of worry. It can take the shape of passive aggressive behavior. That's a little bit of Amy. She's a little more passive aggressive. I'm not so passive aggressive. I'm more aggressive aggressive. That's the kind of aggressive I am. I get very directive when you take me, an imperfect person with a finite perspective and limited influence, I can get really authoritative, directive, and aggressive. And that's not good. That's the maximum trouble I can get into. It might equal control or manipulation for you. When you don't have the influence you want, you might try to get it with control or manipulation, all because we are imperfect people with a finite perspective and limited influence on the situation around us. But listen here, here's the thing. With God, there's an equation where all the ingredients are different. And because all of the ingredients are different, the outcome is distinctly different as well. And this equation, if you want a lens through which to read the entire book of Esther, write this equation down because this is what the book of Esther is teaching us. Ready? Here we go. A perfect God with an infinite perspective and limited influence. You add all those things together, what you get is incredible possibility. A perfect God with an infinite perspective and limitless influence, you add all of things, those things together, what you get is incredible, unimaginable 
glorious possibility and potential for things that you could have never dreamed about. What I want to do real quickly is define each of those terms for you so we kind of have an understanding of what we're talking about. Then we're going to watch this equation uh, play itself out in the book of Esther, talk a little bit about what that means for us. This slide's going to be up here for a minute so you can jot that down if you're taking notes down. So when we say God is perfect, we have a perfect God, what we mean by that is all of his judgments are just, his decisions are without flaw, he gets to define goodness and is in and of himself the definition of goodness. God is totally without sin or error. He is matchless and complete and complete, not incomplete and complete. If you, if I mumble this morning, it's because my face is still swollen, okay? And I got five or six stitches in, so just give me a little bit of grace. God is in need of nothing. He is perfect. We have a perfect God, and what you add to that is God's infinite perspective. And when I say that God has an infinite perspective, what I'm talking about is this word that theologians use, theologians use called the providence of God. Have you heard that word before, providence of God? It comes from a Latin word. The Latin word is providentia, and it's a compound word of two Latin words, pro meaning before, and videntia is, is, um, is a conjugation of the word videre, which is the verb for to see. So the word providence literally means to see before. So when we say God has an unlimited perspective, a limitless perspective, a, 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 an infinite perspective, it means that he sees all things past, present, and future before. Providence, providentia. He sees before. So if I could give you a picture, word picture, maybe how to think about this, I, 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 I'll submit this to you just to maybe help us talk about and think about what it means that God has an infinite perspective. You ever seen those little, um, those little flip books, the, the, the little flip books where people write on like a, a bunch of sticky notes and they draw a different picture on each one, but it's pretty much the same picture, but each little image kind of has a, a different little change to it, a different little tweak. And so when you take that flip chart and you flip through it, like the little kid rides his bike across the page, you know what the things I'm talking about? Or you flip through it and the little dog runs across the thing. Think about our lives a little bit like one of those flip books. And when we look at our lives, what we can see is each snapshot, each moment, each instance, the birth of a child, getting married, whatever. We can see each little snapshot. And we, and we, we can kind of look back over our past and we can put those things together and create a bit of a narrative of sorts. But there may be parts of your life, even in your memory, that are missing. Or they feel disjointed or they feel disconnected. God does not see the world that way. He does not have a finite perspective. His perspective is infinite. He sees our entire life movie all in HD in a single flash. And because God exists outside of time, he sees past, present, and future all together. So you flip through that little book that is your life and you get to this moment right here. That's all you can see, right? You can't see what's in the future, but God can because his perspective is infinite. And at that very same instant, he sees billions of other little flip book lives too. Of every person that's on the planet, every person that will be on the planet, every person that ever has been on the planet. He sees how all those lives interconnect. He sees the entire thing perfectly. That's God's infinite perspective. 
And when we talk about God's limitless influence, we're, we're not so much talking about that he sees all things, but that he is sovereign over all things. This is a little bit different. When we talk about God's limitless influence, his sovereignty, we're talking about his control and his influence in all things. God's sovereignty, if I can give you a word picture, is his hand in the glove of human history. It's God at the steering wheel of the universe. A a, a former pastor here at our church, a guy named A.W. Tozer, uh, compared uh, God's sovereignty to an ocean liner that leaves New York City on its way to Liverpool, England. And Tozer quipped that the passengers can move about the ship in relative freedom, but not any one of them nor any large group of them could impact where that ship will end up. They cannot change that ship's destination. It's going to Liverpool. Tozer says that God's sovereignty is a little bit that way. He wrote this. He says, the mighty liner of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. God moves undisturbed and unhindered toward the fulfillment of those eternal purposes which he purposed in Christ Jesus before the world began. This is God's sovereignty. It's his ability to bring his entire creation to its desired destination. It's God's total, complete, and limitless influence. And when we add those things together, when we take a perfect God with an infinite perspective and limitless influence, we get incredible, glorious, far beyond what we could have asked or imagined or dreamed, possibility and potential. Now let's watch this equation play itself out in the book of Esther, and we'll talk about what it means for us. If you've got your Bibles, I'd love it if you open them up to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2, we'll pick up our story where we left off last week, and we're going to pick up our story in verse 8. Esther chapter 2, verse 8. But for those of you who weren't with us uh, last week, as people are flipping through their Bibles here, you can use the Bible in the seat back in front of you, by the way. Scripture, if you don't have a Bible with you, is always up here on the screen. Uh, You can look on with a neighbor, whatever you need to do to get the text in front of you. But for those of you who were not with us last week, here's kind of what we covered. Uh, We have this king, uh, Esther calls him King Ahasuerus, we'll call him by his Greek name Xerxes just because it's easier to say, and this man is egomaniacal, he's a megalomaniac, he is licentious, and he divorces his wife, Queen Vashti, because she won't parade herself around naked in in front of his drunken friends. And after getting his rear end whipped in battle, uh, King Xerxes comes back to his capital and he's got no one to talk to because he's since divorced Vashti and kicked her out and he never sees her again. So his advisors suggest it might be a good idea to find a new wife to kind of cheer you up. And they say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to gather these young virgins, unmarried girls from all over the Persian Empire, and we're going to bring them all to you. We're going to put them through this process of beautification for 12 months. We're going to put them in hair and makeup and give them classes of, you know, what fork to use at dinner and that kind of stuff and, you know, good posture and whatever else. We're going to send each of them into you. They're going to sleep with you for a night, and you decide which one you'd like to be your wife. And so the king says, well, that sounds good to me. And so he issues an edict that that needs to happen with all of the young women in the country. All the while, a Jew named Mordecai is raising this orphaned girl named 
Esther. Uh, Mordecai and Esther were related. Esther's parents had died, uh, likely during Babylonian uh, captivity, uh, even maybe perhaps even Persian captivity. And Mordecai takes Esther as his own daughter. Let's pick it up in verse 8. Here we go. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, that means when, when he gathers all these young women together to figure out which one's going to be his wife, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace. This is young Esther, daughter of Mordecai, her adopted dad, and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. I want you to notice two things in Esther chapter 2, verse 8. One, the author says that the women who were brought into the palace were young. They were young. The Bible also tells us that they were virgins and that they were unmarried. So in this time and place, the 5th century B.C., if you were a young, unmarried, virgin female, you were likely about 14 or 15 years old. This is about how old Esther was. About 14 or 15 years old. Can you imagine that? The second thing that the Bible tells us is that Esther was taken into custody. Did you catch that word, taken? Esther was taken into custody. Uh, We're meant to take that word very literally. This was not a beauty pageant that these women chose to enter just so like whoever wins would would, you know, gets to be queen or something like that. This is like a, a weird, warped, forced version of The Bachelor is what this is. Like, this is bad. These women are conscripted against their will. Many of them likely pulled out of healthy family situations. Many of them likely not allowed to marry someone that they actually loved and wanted to marry. They were forced into essentially sexual servitude of this wicked, wicked king. And Esther, young Esther, was one of those women. Now, Last week, we talked a little bit about Mordecai's example of being a faithful man who raised this young orphan girl. And we talked about the fact that that we learn from Mordecai to be faithful to the task that God has called us to, no matter how big or small that task may be, because it could make a difference in the world even when you least expect it. You remember talking about that last week? And, and here's the thing, here's what I want you to know, that, that Mordecai is a great example to follow in a lot of cases. Esther is a great example to follow in a lot of cases, but neither Esther nor Mordecai were perfect people. They're like us. They are imperfect people with finite perspectives and limited influence And sometimes what happens when you take imperfect people with finite perspectives and limited influence? What does it equal? Maximum trouble sometimes, doesn't it? Maximum trouble. I just want to point out a couple of occasions in the text where Esther and Mordecai get themselves into a little bit of trouble because they are imperfect people. Okay, I want to point out a couple of them, and then I want to make a comment about a couple of them. Okay, here's the first thing. In Esther chapter 2, verse 14, this is uh, Xerxes issues this edict. Bring all these versions to me. Not versions, virgins. Um, I, I, am, I, I do apologize for, for mumbling. Um, so here's, here's what the Bible says what happens when they bring these virgins to Xerxes and they put them through the beautification process for 12 months. At the end of those 12 months, in the evening, she, an individual, a woman, one of these young women, would go in 
and then in the morning, she would return. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return. Is everybody with me here? Okay. We used to call this the walk of shame at university. To the second harem in custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the what? The concubines. Here, okay, between evening and morning, here's what, here's what happens. They watch movies and make snacks. No. That's not what's happening. Each of these women would have gone in and had sex with this king. And then the next one would go in, and the next one would go in, and the next one would go in. And Esther, like the other conscripted against her will, young women would have had sex with King Xerxes. Again, let me make some comments about it before you send me emails and blow up. First, there are plenty of biblical examples where faithful individuals who love God and fear him and worship him as I 100% believe that Esther did. There are plenty of examples where people stand against this kind of injustice and put their lives in jeopardy, risk their lives to stand up for what's right. Daniel did it, remember, in the face of King Nebuchadnezzar and refused to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who you may know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused. He said, no matter how hot you make that furnace, King, we ain't, we ain't moving. We, we ain't going to budge. Peter in the New Testament did it. He said, I, I, I refuse to, to stop preaching the gospel. I, I'm, I don't fear you. I fear God. I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. Esther gave in. Esther gave in. Esther 2 verse 10 also tells us this, that Esther had not made known her people or kindred. Can I have that verse, please? Esther, would, Esther had not made known her people or kindred for because, there's not two conjunctions there, just one, because Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Esther had not made known her people or kindred. Remember, she's a Jew, but she has not disclosed that. Now, Choosing not to disclose your nationality is your business, and it is not a sin. But for Esther and Mordecai, not disclosing their nationality would have been tantamount to uh, abandoning their religion. Re remember this last week that we talked about, we, we had so many Jews in the capital of Susa, even 15 million throughout the Persian Empire, and they experienced a relative amount of comfort and captivity. And, and, and it was so much so that the, the Jews and their polytheistic captors were nearly indistinguishable within the capital city of Susa. So apparently, both Esther and Mordecai had assimilated into Persian culture so much that they could pose as Persians, and they did so deliberately. What that meant for them is that they would have had to abandon Old Testament dietary restrictions, especially when Esther was in the king's control for a year. Daniel refused to abandon Old Testament dietary restrictions. It seems that Esther did because that's the only way she could have hidden her nationality. Uh, Esther and Mordecai could not have prayed, at least publicly, and they could not have worshipped Yahweh. Furthermore, Esther ends up marrying this Gentile man, which is in direct disobedience to the Old Testament Mosaic law. Now, that's just a couple of examples where Esther and Mordecai are not perfect people. And, and Bible scholars and commentators 
theologians and people, you know, they bicker and argue about this stuff all the time. I, I like sometimes I, I, li- I read these guys and it seems like it's, you know, little old ladies in a hair salon, you know. Sorry, little old ladies. Um, actually, I'm comparing you to some really big time scholars, so it's actually a compliment. So they argue back and forth. They really do. They argue back and forth about this stuff. And I actually ran across an article this week, Ryan. It was called Esther, Harlot or Hero. That's literally what the article was called. I'm going, Really? Is this kind of what we've been, this is what we've come to? Esther, harlot, or hero? Can I make, can I make two comments about what I think is going on here? Okay. First is this. Can we give Esther and Mordecai just a little bit of grace, maybe? Just a little bit of grace? How many of us, as a 14 or 15-year-old, were conscripted against our will into sexual slavery? Okay. That's number one. Number two, they're both living in exile, Their people have been captive for more than 100 years at this point, and they're afraid for their life. They're just trying to survive. They're just just trying to survive. They're not perfect. Just trying to survive. Second, and here's the key learning from this particular piece of the book of Esther. Here's the key learning. It's up here on the screen. God loves using imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will. And aren't you glad, by the way? Like, I'm thrilled about this. That God loves using imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will and plan. He loves using imperfect people with a finite perspective and limited influence to accomplish his perfect will. Why would God love that? Because when he exercises his infinite perspective and his limitless influence to do far beyond what we could have asked or imagined, even when we're not perfect, who gets the glory? Who gets the attention? He does. I love the fact that the book of Esther is exceptionally human. These are not perfect people. They don't do everything right. They're broken, just like we are. They're conflicted, just like we are. They're faithless at times, just like we are. They make mistakes, just like we do. And I, and I hope this is not just me speaking here. Like I hope that you like resonate with this. But I'm really quite relieved Because often we read the Bible and like we have this misplaced expectation that everybody in the Bible is like super duper holy and super duper righteous and makes super great decisions all the time, even if it costs them their life. Not in this case, they don't. We picture it like an old Western movie, like, you know, there's, there's the good guys who can never do anything bad, and there's the bad guys who can never do anything good. But that type of conflict doesn't exist in real life. There is a real inner conflict going on here with Esther and Mordecai. They are really struggling. They're doing the best they can to be faithful to their core values while their emotions and thoughts and even in their their body goes to war with those core values. Remember, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, how our internal being sometimes goes to war with itself. This is what Esther and Mordecai are experiencing. This is a very difficult situation. So here's the deal. We're going to do something here this morning because I think it's important that we do that. Could you all all look up at me? Look up at me. Everybody look up at me. Get a good look. Get a good look. And I want you to to repeat after me. Luke, that's me, by the way. Okay. You're not perfect. Wow. Some of you sounded pretty confident about that. You were excited about saying that. Okay. Okay. Also, say this to me. Luke, I'm not perfect. Doesn't that feel good sometimes to just say that? I'm not perfect. Doesn't that feel good? My perspective is finite. 
I'm not perfect. My influence is limited. Sometimes when I add those things together, it gets me into maximum trouble. But watch this. Here's the thing. God is perfect. Oh, yeah, look, you're already repeating still. I love this. I love this. You're with me. Say it again one more time. God is perfect. And look what he loves to do. He loves using imperfect people, you and me, you and me, to accomplish his perfect will. Esther and Mordecai, to accomplish his perfect will. These aren't perfect people. They're struggling. They're doing their best, but they're not perfect. You know what? You know what? You're struggling too, aren't you? And doing your best. I'm struggling too. I'm doing my best to be faithful. But there are moments and days and times when it's not easy. I don't make great decisions all the time. I'm just thrilled that God uses imperfect people like me to accomplish his perfect will. A little bit of trivia for you. There are two books of the Bible that don't mention the name of God. Two. One of them uh, should be obvious, Song of Solomon. If you've read that, you, it makes sense that it doesn't mention the name of God. Number two, the second book that doesn't mention the name of God is Esther. Esther never mentions the name of God. But that perfect God with limitless influence and an infinite perspective has still got his thumbprints on every little thing that happens in this book. He superintends circumstances. Even when we feel like he's invisible, even when we feel like he's not there, God is still at work using broken people, difficult situations, tyrannical governments, and even genocidal maniacs will come to find here in just a few minutes to implement his own perfect plan. God does not need perfect circumstances or perfect situations to implement his perfect plan. Why? Because he's perfect, so he doesn't need perfect situations. Watch this. God allowed a situation in which Jews were indistinguishable in the Persian, indistinguishable from their Persian captors, cap, captors within the capital. Not a great situation, but God used it in order to exalt Esther to the throne room. When Mordecai declined to return to Jerusalem with the rest of the Jews to rebuild the city, God still used him in Susa. God used King Xerxes' sin that created an empty throne in order to exalt Esther to the throne. God caused Xerxes to love Esther more than any other woman and so that he crowned her queen. We'll soon hear that God allowed Mordecai to catch wind of an evil plot against the king and even against the Jewish people that will prove critical to accomplishing God's perfect plan. And you and I can read this book 2,500 years later and see, okay, yeah, God uses his infinite perspective and limitless influence in order to realize his perfect plan. But there is no indication in the text that Mordecai and Esther see that. They're just doing their best. Striving and struggling in the midst of their brokenness to be faithful to God's call. And all the while, God continues to use imperfect people to implement his perfect plan. What this does not do, men and women of God, is give us an excuse to sin. Oh, great. God uses imperfect people. I'm really imperfect. <laughs> and I intend on being a lot more imperfect this week now that I know that. No, that's not how this works. What it means is, when we bring our brokenness to God, when we bring our imperfections to God, when we bring our doubts to God, when we bring our struggles to God, we'll see Mordecai and Esther do it here in a few moments. God can use that in order to realize his perfect plan and do things that are beyond our imagination. 
I was at a conference a few weeks ago, and I had, a, I had the privilege of listening to a young woman speak. Her name is Pranitha Timothy. Uh, Pranitha was born in India. She couldn't have been more than 90 pounds, uh, wet and wearing boots, by the way. She was a, a little uh, woman, young woman. Uh, when she was in her teens, Pranitha was diagnosed with a brain tumor, caused her to use, uh, lose 60% of her muscle function in her body. Uh, her nerves began to choke her a little bit, and it caused her to lose her voice for two years. Pranitha was unable to speak for more than two years. And when her voice finally returned, it came back feeble and brittle. It was even difficult to hear her even into a microphone. It was not powerful at all by today's standards. And, and in, in addition to her physical brokenness, uh, Pranitha had also experienced quite a bit of spiritual and emotional brokenness. Pranitha talked about in this keynote speech her struggles with her own faith. She explained that she had a legalistic upbringing that caused her to reject Jesus and live a licentious lifestyle for a time. And then even after returning to Jesus, Pranitha struggles with courage. She struggles with processing through the idea that there's a good God, but there's also evil in the world. It was, it was a struggle for Pranitha. She, she, she had difficulty at times. But Pranitha has learned to submit her brokenness to God her imperfections to God, to let him have her doubt, her past, her disobedience, to be that broken, imperfect vessel that God uses to bring about his perfect plan. And so, to date, God, in his providence, his infinite perspective, and his sovereignty, his limitless influence, today God has seen fit to use Pranitha Timothy to lead more than 50 slave liberation movements across India. Pranitha has personally set free more than 4,000 men, women, and children from sexual slavery and indentured servitude across India. She literally, just like Esther did, takes her life into her own hands when she stands up in front of a drug lord or a mercenary and says, you will let your slaves go with her feeble little voice and her 90-pound frame and her doubts and her insecurities and her brokenness. And despite her physical and spiritual brokenness, because of her faithfulness now, God is using her to bring about his perfect plan and bring his kingdom to earth. That was Mordecai and Esther. Broken people, imperfect people, struggling people, but people God used when they brought their struggle and brokenness to him. Now, I don't have to tell you how this applies to you, do I? <laughs> you and I are broken. We just talked about it. You, you and I are imperfect. You and I don't always do all things right, but when we come to God and we say, all right, God, I'm struggling. All right, God, I'm imperfect. Even a God, God can use even situations like that. This is, this is, this is why God amazes me. One of a thousand reasons. But I, I guess if I were God, I would, I would, I would fix it all. I would prevent it all. But God uses it. Can you believe that? God even uses our brokenness. He uses our imperfections. He uses it. All things for his glory and for our good when we submit them to him. 
Let's finish our story from the, uh, from, we're going to get through Esther chapter 4 this morning, get through the end of chapter 4, so we need to get through it quickly here. We'll grab one more principle and we'll be done. So Esther rises to become queen and replace Vashti because she wins this little uh, forced beauty pageant uh, that Xerxes puts on. And she's been crowned queen now for four years. And after those four years, her adoptive father, Mordecai, discovers a plot by a wicked man named Haman. And this plot was to exterminate the Jews. Remember, about 15 million Jews living in the Persian uh, Empire at that time. So we're talking about a genocide of Holocaust proportions. A couple of quick notes on Haman, this man who wants to exterminate the Jews. Uh, first, the book of Esther regularly calls him Haman the Agagite. Haman the Agagite. And, and we might look at that and go, Agagite, that's fun to say. Other than that, I'm not really sure what that means. But it does have biblical and historical significance. If you know your Old Testament history, you know that entire nations would move together in caravans a lot of time. And, and, and you, hundreds of thousands, even millions of people moving together in a large caravan. And what would happen in these caravans is the young, able male warriors would kind of lead the way of this caravan. And then those who were aging, those who were sick, those who were disabled, children, they would kind of fall to the rear of this caravan. That should make sense to you. I hope it does. And there was a group of people, Deuteronomy tells us, called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites would rush these caravans unexpectedly and take out just the rear. They'd get after those who could not defend themselves. They wouldn't attack the warriors at the front. They would attack the defenseless in the rear. And, you know, I shouldn't have to tell you that that wasn't really popular with God. God wasn't really excited about that tactic. So he demanded that King Saul exterminate this wicked race of people called the Amalekites. And Saul did almost all of what God commanded, but he kept the Amalekite king. He kept him in order to show off and say, look what I did. Look what I did. I conquered all these guys. And now I have this Amalekite king. His name, coincidentally, was Agag. Haman is an Agagite. He's a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites. So for obvious reasons, the descendants of Agag, of which Haman is one, are not very popular with the Jews. In fact, to this day, if you would go to the Feast of Purim in a, in a Jewish context, uh, what you would hear when the book of Esther is read, because Esther is an account of where the Feast of Purim comes from. So if, when you hear Haman's name mentioned, everybody in the congregation would stamp their feet and say, let his name be blotted out. They don't like Haman very much. And Haman didn't like them very much. And, and the Jews' reason for disliking Haman not disliking, hating Haman and want his, wanting his name to be blotted out from history. They were legitimate reasons. Haman preyed upon this king's impetuous behavior. Remember, King Xerxes can be swayed by just whatever advisor walks before him. So Haman said, hey, make me prime minister. And he manipulated the king and, and promoted himself to become prime minister. In addition, he manipulated the king into passing an edict that required the entire empire to bow and worship him. So Haman goes to the king, Xerxes, and says, hey, issue an edict, and everybody's got to bow and worship me. And Xerxes goes, okay, that sounds good. And he signs a piece of paper, and they issue the edict. Here's where things change for Mordecai. 
Mordecai, who was once kind of struggling, Mordecai, who was once kind of conflicted, Mordecai, the imperfect guy, says, you know what? That's it. I've had it. This I can't do anymore. Mordecai begins to resist. Look at Esther chapter 3, verse 2. It's up here on the screen. It reads this way. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. Okay? Everybody's doing it. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but listen, Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Mordecai's saying, that's it, no more. Keep going. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Like, what? Why, why, why do you not bow down? This doesn't make sense, man. We've known you for a long time. Why in the world are you not bowing down? Keep reading. And when they spoke to him day after day, he wouldn't listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for what he had told them that he was a Jew. Aha. Now it makes sense why these guys are going, why do you transgress the king's command? Because they didn't know he was a Jew. But now he's finally saying, no, 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 no. No, I'm standing up now. This is too much for me. How many of us are like Mordecai, by the way? You know, we kind of hold our, our Christian faith cards close to our chest sometimes, don't we? Until there's a crisis, until there's a moment of difficulty, until there's a moment that pricks your conscience just a little too hard, and then all of a sudden we say, no, 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 that's too much for me. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. This was Mordecai. Finally, he's saying, nope, I'm a Jew. I refuse to do that. Now, Haman, wicked Haman, can't endure a Jew that he already hates, by the way, and he wants to exterminate. And now this guy won't even bow down and worship him. He can't endure it. So again, he manipulates the king into signing that edict that allows Haman to begin to enact a mass genocide of the Jews in the Persian Empire. The king literally gave Haman his royal signet ring, like the stamp that, they, uh, that the king uses. And he gave him unlimited resources to carry out this edict. But Mordecai, uh, Esther's adoptive father, gets wind of Haman's plot. And, and then again, we see a different posture before God. We see Mordecai's posture before God change when he knows he's in trouble, when he knows there's a crisis coming. Look at Esther chapter 4 verse 1. It says this, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, when he learned about this edict to exterminate his people, Mordecai tore his clothes like contextually, we'll come back to this because this probably doesn't make sense if you don't know the context. And put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Here's what would happen in the 5th century BC. When someone was mourning, when someone was grieving, they would do so in a very out outward way, an external way, a very emotive and expressive kind of way. And a couple of things that they would do is tear their clothes and put on these big like gunny sack things called sackcloth and they put ashes on themselves and they would mourn publicly in the city square. This is what Mordecai is doing. But his public weeping, his sackcloth and ashes, tearing his clothes are not just signs of, re of grief, they're also signs of repentance. That's also how people repented in the 5th century B.C. Yes, Mordecai is distressed and concerned about Haman's genocidal plot to exterminate almost 15 million Jews. But more importantly, however, Mordecai takes on a posture of repentance. Again, it's the same with us. 
When things are rocking along like they were for Esther and Mordecai, who were enjoying relative comfort within the Persian Empire, who had assimilated into culture, and they were doing okay, and Esther's become queen, and she used her position to get Mordecai a place at the king's gate. I mean, everything's kind of rocking along, but when a crisis hits, when things get difficult, we run to God immediately, don't we? And we cry out just like Mordecai did. And here's the thing, when we do that, when we've struggled, when we've been imperfect, when we've not always stood up for what's right and not always done what God wanted, and then a crisis hits, and then we run to God and say, oh, God, hear my prayer. Here's what God says. He goes, all right, six months, you do the right thing, and then I'll start listening. No. No. Of course he hears our prayer. Of course he hears our prayer. He delights in hearing from imperfect people. If he didn't delight in hearing from imperfect people, he wouldn't hear from people ever because that's all of us. This is what makes me so thrilled to know that 2 Timothy would tell us this. little verse tucked into 2 Timothy says this. When we're faithless, God remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Aren't you glad? Even when we're broken and imperfect, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So eventually Esther, whilst in her Persian palace, gets wind of Mordecai's presence at the city gate and sends word to him. And the two of them, Mordecai and Esther, because they can't see each other, she's in the palace and he's outside of the palace, start to have a conversation by way of a messenger. And Mordecai gets word to Esther and he says, look, this guy Haman's got a wicked plot and he's going to try to exterminate us all. You need to go before the king and tell him what's going on. Save us. Save me. Save yourself. Save all of God's people. And Esther has got a couple of concerns, and her concerns are both legitimate. First concern is this. If I go before the king and say, hey, save this race of people that Haman's trying to kill, and the king says, why? Why do you want to save this race of people? Esther has to say, well, I'm one of them. King doesn't know that yet. Nobody knows that yet. She's not revealed her nationality, her people, her kindred. The second concern that Esther's got, again, totally legitimate concern, is that anyone who goes before the king and is not summoned by name, the penalty was death. Unless the king held out the golden scepter and said, all right, she's cool, they would kill her on the spot. So Esther says, Mordecai, you're like my dad, you're my adopted dad, I respect you a ton, but this is problematic. And now Esther's heart begins to shift when Mordecai responds Mordecai comes back after Esther says, here are my concerns. And he comes back and he gives her an encouragement and even an exhortation. And Esther's heart begins to shift. Look what happens. It says, then Mordecai told them, this is the messenger, to reply to Esther. Don't think to yourself that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than the other Jews. Like, don't think you're going to get bailed out just because you're queen. Like you're going down with the, if, we, if, if, if we're going down, you're going down with us. Keep reading. For if you keep silent, he says to Esther, at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Once again, the fingerprints of a perfect God with the infinite perspective and limitless influence all over the book. He has brought Esther to power within the Persian empire in order to use her for such a time as this. Esther 
takes Mordecai's words to heart, and she calls all of her girls together, and they begin to fast and pray. This is the first time, by the way, that we see Esther pray in the book of Esther when Mordecai exhorts her in this way. And after praying, Esther tells Mordecai this. It's a famous statement from the book of Esther. Keep, keep going. Then I will go to the king. I'll do it, as you say, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. I'm going to go do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this courageous thing. I'm going to do this brave thing in order to save myself and, more importantly, God's people. I'm going to do it as an act of obedience, and if it means my life, so be it. This is not a resignation to death. This is Esther now putting her life on the line for the sake of the people of God. As I read this text this week and as I studied the book uh, of Esther, as we get to this point in the book where Esther's been doing all right so far, you know, she's now queen and she's got a lot of authority and influence and Mordecai's doing pretty well now because he's been exalted and given position and authority and influence within Esther's kingdom. Like everything's kind of going okay for those guys. They've been assimilated into culture and they're having a difficult time and they're broken and imperfect and they don't always do the right thing. But then crisis hits and both of them step up. Mordecai steps up and says, I'm not standing for this. I'm not bowing before that guy. I'm a Jew. We bow before one guy. Then Esther steps up and says, all right, if it means my life, I'm going to do this courageous thing. So here's what kept going on in my head as I read the book of Esther. Here, here we go. It's never too late to do the right thing. It's never too late to do the right thing. Some of you need to hear this this morning. Some of you need to hear this this morning because some of you are like Mordecai and Esther. Some of you have assimilated into culture a little too much. Some of us are living in relative comfort a little too much. Some of us, our lives are kind of rocking along and we've kind of forgotten God and we've kind of left him by the wayside. And what's happened is we've bailed out of a marriage that was difficult. It's never too late to do the right thing. We've taken money that wasn't ours. It's never too late to do the right thing. We've lived a lie for a day, a week, or years maybe, and it's never too late to do the right thing. We've withheld and held our Christian cards really close to our chest and not talked about Jesus with that friend or family member that really needs to hear about his grace. Can I just exhort you this morning? It's never too late to do the right thing. It's never too late to stand up for what's right. It's never too late to step out in an act of faith and courage. I know it's scary it was scary for Esther, I'm sure, to say those words. If I die, I die. She knows what could be waiting for her on the other side of this courageous act, but she does it anyway. Why? Because it's never too late. You've never gone so far down that road that God can't bring you back. It's never irreparable. I can speak from experience. It's never beyond restoration, no matter how much you think it is. It's never too late to do the right thing and let God use you, an imperfect person, to accomplish his perfect will. And when Esther makes that decision, the end of Esther chapter four, there's kind of this pause button. We know she's going before the king. We know that if it doesn't work out, which at this point, if you know the story, you know it does. But at this point, feel that tension with me. If you're reading the book of Esther for the first time, or even if you're living this story like they were, they don't know. They don't know what's going to happen. The likelihood is it ain't going to work out very well. But Esther makes a choice. 
instead of trusting in herself, an imperfect person, instead of trusting in her limited perspective, her finite perspective, instead of trusting in her own limited influence and getting maximum trouble as a result, watch what Esther does. She trusts a perfect God with an infinite perspective and limitless influence. And what we're going to see is incredible possibility as a result. We're going to see God do something unreal, far beyond what we could have asked or imagined, but it takes Esther making that courageous choice to trust a perfect God with an infinite perspective and limitless influence and putting her life into his hands. Would you pray with me? So God, I want to pray for two things. First, I want to pray that uh, this word your word to us today sinks into our hearts and changes us that we take it to heart. So I'll spend some time there. And God, then I want to just pray and lead us uh, as a body, as a congregation, as we prepare our hearts to receive communion. So God, first we start with that statement together. We are imperfect. I am imperfect. God, these men and women, these saints who have gathered with me today are imperfect as well. But you're perfect. God, our perspective is finite, but yours is infinite. You see all things and know all things. God, our influence, our ability to manage outcomes and consequences is limited extremely. God, we think we can control and we think we can shove and push around and we think we can't. God, we can't. It's all in your hands and your influence is limitless. So God, teach us to trust you teach us God those of us who are imperfect like Mordecai and Esther to be faithful like Mordecai and Esther those of us who are imperfect like they were to trust in a perfect God who's got his glory and our good in his heart God direct and guide and superintend in your sovereignty hold us closely to you Use our brokenness and imperfections to grow us and to bring glory to yourself. Remind us today, O oh God, that you are trustworthy. So God, now we also prepare our hearts to receive the elements of communion. God, we take Paul's exhortation to heart, his exhortation to the church at Corinth that we ought to examine ourselves before we before we go about really a solemn and worshipful reverent act. So God, we ask that you would reveal sin to us that we might confess it and enjoy your forgiveness. God, that your grace, the weight of your undeserved favor might weigh heavy on us in this moment as we prepare our hearts. God, thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. And we just come before you even as Ecclesiastes says, says with, with, with few words in this moment of communion. A quiet, submissive hearts. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, Amen. 
couple of things real quick in terms of instructions for communion. One, the ushers are going to come forward and pass the tray. Please take a little uh, piece of bread and a little cup. The bread represents Christ's body given for us. The blood represents, or the, the juice represents his blood shed for us. If you uh, call yourself a Christian, if you've come to Jesus in repentance and faith, you are welcome uh, to participate with us in communion. You don't have to be a regular attender here. You don't have to be a ministry partner here. We practice what's called open table. But if you've never said yes to Jesus, uh, my invitation to you would be to pass on this part of the service. Just pass the plate on by you. And, and, and I pray for you and hope for you that even as you pass that tray, that just the weight of the grace that God holds in his hand for you, the weight of the forgiveness that he holds out like this and says, come, come to me and enjoy my forgiveness would, would sit heavy on you even in this moment. Let's prepare our hearts together even as we sing. Ushers, come forward and serve us. Invite you to hold those elements and we'll take them all together in a few moments. Let's sing.